ourselves in that category. We may have had this great spiritual time in our, in our life. Maybe it was in college. Maybe it was in junior high. Maybe it was when we became a Christian in our mid-20s. And, and you go through this great transformation. And then seven or eight years later, you got a couple kids and work's busy. And, you know, things have gotten sort of old. And it's important for you to hear every now and then, hey, guess what? I know maybe you haven't felt that I'm so near lately, but you need to hear me when I tell you that I love you, that you are my child. Does that make sense? And that's where Malachi begins. Now, what's interesting is he then, uh, God then moves into the rest of the book of Malachi. Again, that's still the same context, but he starts addressing the children of Israel with a few different things. We're going to get into those in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are here today. I thank you that, uh, as your word told us last week, we're here because you've called us. Father, you've invited us to be your children, your daughters, and your sons And so, Father, I pray that we would hear that you love us, not only through the words that are written in Malachi, but I pray that we would hear that you love us through the person of your son, Jesus, that that you love the world so much that you sent your only son to die for us, that we might live, that we might have a relationship with you. And so, Father, let us be convinced of your love for us. Father, I pray that you would also allow us to not only hear the good news that you have for us, but that you would allow us to hear the bad news that you have for us as well. And so, Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts through the power of your Spirit um, to hear from your Word today. And, Father, as I always pray, I would ask that you uh, wouldn't let anyone leave this place this morning without truly having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, I grew up in the church, right? It just pickled me through and through, like all of my experiences, the way that I think, the language that I use, it's all churchy, right? It's all youth groupy. And uh, so it's great. One of the best things that happens to me is I meet people who aren't so churchy, aren't so youth groupy. They help me sort of, you know, lose some of that language. They help me see things through other people's points of view. Well, having grown up in the church, um, different eras of the church, there are different sort of speakers that are the popular speakers of the day, right? So it might have been Donald Miller a few years ago. It might be Andy Stanley or Louis Giglio today. Well, when I was in college, when I was a sophomore, the main speaker, the main Christian speaker on the scene was a guy named Tony Campolo. Anybody familiar with Tony Campolo? Awesome. Great stuff. I mean, he was just a fantastic speaker. And part of the reason that he was so good is because his message over and over again was to evangelicals, or that is people who were, you know, really serious about believing that Jesus was the way uh, to have a relationship with God. They wanted to be really serious about the Bible. And part of his message over and over again was, all right, that's great. Be serious about Jesus. That's great. Be serious about, about the Bible. But don't forget that the Bible has a lot to say, not only about salvation, but the Bible has a lot to say about caring for the poor and caring for the broken and caring for the downcast and the downtrodden. Don't forget that. And we've got those people all around us. And this message that he preached was really important, particularly for those of us in this white Anglo church, because for us, you know, everything kind of seemed fine. But it's because we didn't have many relationships with people for whom everything wasn't fine. Does that make sense? So Tony Campolo came to speak at Covenant College. Now, I don't know if you've been to Covenant College before. It's up on the top of Lookout Mountain. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it's mostly populated by wealthy or middle-class Anglo people, right? And so Tony Campolo, when I'm a sophomore in college, comes in to speak in chapel. And the chapel's a lot bigger than this, and the ceilings are really high. He's standing right in the middle of the stage. And as a 19-year-old churchy kid, I was excited about getting to hear from Tony Campolo because he's the big speaker of the day, right? 
And so I made it, and I, I remember sitting on the front row because I wanted to be kind of close to where he was speaking, so I wanted to focus on him. And so I sat on the front row, and Tony Campolo got up and began to give his message. And of course, the message essentially was, in a very nice, kind way, it was, hey, I'm glad you guys love Jesus. I'm glad you take the Bible seriously. But as a bunch of middle class and upper middle class Anglo kids, let's not forget that not everybody's living the same life that you are. Let's remember that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor, who are oppressed, who are struggling throughout the entire world, but also here in America as well. And he was sort of making these points. And, he's, and, and he was, I remember he was making a point, and he was sort of getting into this passionate state, which was easy for him to do because he's kind of passionate all the time. His face is shaking and little beads of sweat are coming up on his large, bald forehead. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden he's getting ready to make this point, and I hear this noise, and out of the ceiling, one solitary tennis ball dropped onto the stage about five feet from where he was standing, out of the ceiling of the chapel. There he is right there, without the sweat. And uh, the tennis ball dropped and went boom, 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 and rolled off the stage. And Tony Campolo, who's a funny guy, looked over at that tennis ball, and he was like, oh, I get it. You guys are playing some sort of joke on me. And, and the tennis ball had fallen out of like one of these empty light, recessed light sockets on the ceiling. Tennis ball fell. And so he, you know, kind of joked around about it and laughed good-naturedly. And then he was sort of getting back into his talk, and he was starting to make another point. And about two minutes later, another tennis ball goes boom, 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 and drops out of the ceiling, out of the same hole, and rolls across the stage onto the floor. And again, good-naturedly, he laughed. Well, it happened about six more times during the middle of his talk. And again, every time, patient, good-natured. And of course, it's just reinforcing this view that he has that all you kids, Anglo, middle-class kids living up here on this mountain, you're just not living in the real world, right? You're missing it. And, and he was getting ready to sort of make this point, and uh, all of a sudden, not one, but about 40 tennis balls come out of this hole in the ceiling and land on the stage next to him. And I remember sitting there in the front row and watching his face, which turned this color of red, not unlike the seats that you're sitting in, and he lost it. I mean, he started letting us have it. I mean, notes done, right? They're gone, right? But he was preaching, right? I mean, he was still preaching very much, very passionately to those of us sitting in this room. And, uh, and he let us have it. And he basically said, you guys are just, you're just living in this fairy world, right? And, and you're, you think you're a passionate Christian. You think that you care. You think you're, you know, so great because you have good theology and you have good Bible content and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, do you really care about the holiness of God? Do you really care about these people that you pass as you drive through the streets of Chattanooga or wherever you are from? And what he was very attuned to was the fact that our actions, or maybe our lack of action, was actually a demonstration about our attitudes. Does that make sense? In other words, he might say, well, I can see by your action that your attitude is, is way off, right? And so he finished the talk, and I went up to him afterwards and, you know, and basically said, I'm, I'm apologizing for all, you know, for all 1,200 students. I don't know who did it, but I'm apologizing for them all. And I uh, had a great little conversation with him afterwards, but it was great to talk to him because, again, his key point was, that the way that we act or our actions are simply a symptom of our attitude toward God, right? Our actions are a symptom of our attitude toward God. Okay, that's exactly what God is communicating to the Israelites here in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. What he's basically saying is, I, I, I can see your actions, I can see your attitudes, and it's communicating loud and clear what you think about me, who you think 
I am. Let's read the words of Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Again, God just told him, I love you, right? I chose you. I'm telling you this, but you need to hear this too. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to you, with us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, it's really clear the problem that God or problems that God is addressing with his children, his loved ones, right? The ones that he chose to be his children. And I'm, I'm going to break it down into two different very simple categories. The first problem that God is addressing with the children of Israel is he's really addressing their disrespectful attitudes in worship. And so we're going to put these verses up on the screen. It's, it's real clear. Look at verses 12 and 13 where God says, But you profane it by saying, The Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, What a burden. What a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let me call time out here really quickly and say this. God, and, and you're picked up on this already, but, but God's primarily writing to the priests of Israel, right? And he's basically saying, look, you guys are treating my worship as, with, with this terrible attitude as if it's this great burden to you, right? And, uh, and, and essentially, you're demonstrating it through your actions, which we're going to get to in a minute. And so it'd be really easy to make this sermon all about me as the pastor, right? Oh, BP, you don't worry about, you know, honoring my name. You're disrespectful in your attitude toward me. And that would be accurate and true. But what you need to understand is that these priests in the Old Testament were in some respects responsible for worshiping God on behalf of the people, right? In the New Testament, we read that now Jesus is our high priest, right? And so we, we believe in this thing called the priesthood of all believers, which means we all have opportunity to come into the presence of God and to worship him. So there's a real sense in which this is not just for pastors or for priests, but it's for all of us. It's for everyone who comes into the presence of God and what God is saying to them all the way 2,500 years ago, but he's saying to us today as well, is he's saying, let's be honest. Sometimes you're disrespectful to me in your attitudes of worship, right? Sometimes you feel burdened by having to worship me, don't you? 
right? Don't you feel burdened by that sometimes? You know, don't you feel like, oh, this is such a, you know, oh, I can't believe I've got to go to church today. Oh, I can't believe, you know, I've got to have my quiet time, you know, or oh, I'd rather not. It's this attitude of, oh, it's kind of a burden, you know? I'll be honest with you, instead of just casting stones on you, I'll sort of indict myself in this, and I'll say, I, I feel like that, and I'm a pastor. There are plenty of times where I'm having my quiet time, or I'm sitting here at church, you know, on Sunday morning, and it does feel like a burden to me. To my shame, I feel burdened, and it's this covert attitude that nobody would ever have, right? Or nobody would ever know about if I didn't tell you. Uh, there's a, an article that was written or, by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick, and in this article that she's writing, she talks about the average Christian's sort of attitude toward God. And I'm going to read this. It's not going to be up on the screen, so just listen if you will. The, uh, the, the article is called, is called Because He Loves Me. And uh, she writes this. She says, A number of years ago, my husband and I had the wonderful opportunity to vacation in Europe. In about three and a half weeks, we visited 13 different nations. When we'd enter a country, we'd get our passports stamped, exchange currencies, learn a few key phrases... And then off we'd go to visit the natives. We'd wander through outdoor markets, peruse museums, and sample the cuisine. We'd exchange a few niceties with the locals, sit on the steps of cathedrals, watch the life of the town go by, take a picture or two, and purchase a little something to remind us of our time there. And then we were off. We had a wonderful vacation. Our hearts, however, were not changed in any significant ways by these little visits. But then they weren't meant to be because we were just tourists, right? She, she goes on to say this. It seems to me that what I've just described is very close to many people's understanding of congregational life of the local church. On any given weekend, many tourists can be found in church. They pop in for 45 minutes or for an hour, sing a chorus or two, and exchange niceties with the locals. They sample some of the local cuisine. They might purchase a book or CD to remind them of their visit. And then they race to their cars to get to their favorite restaurant before the rush, or they try to rush to get home before the game. For many people, church or worship is simply about being a tourist, and our land is filled with these tourist-friendly churches, right? In other words, when we come to worship God, we have this attitude of a tourist, right? We kind of come and do we like the music or not? Did we like the sermon or not? Did, did Jay do a good job or not? You know, we, you know, we sort of evaluate it maybe as a tourist or maybe we evaluate as someone who is a consumer. And what we forget is that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. We forget that we're not the audience, that he is, right? God's the primary audience today. And our job as members in this congregation is to give him what he desires. And what he desires is an attitude of worship from you. He desires your whole heart, right? And so let me just ask you this really quickly. And I'm not going to point out too many different examples of this. But have any of you had disrespectful attitudes in worship? Again, I have. Half the time I'm over here and my disrespectful attitude is that I simply forget that I'm in the presence of God, and so I'm, I'm focused on, you know, the sound, or I'm focused on the music, or I'm focused on the announcement I have to make, or I'm thinking about my sermon, but all the while I forget that I'm supposed to be interacting with the most important person in the room, and that's God, the author of all reality, the, the engineer of everything that exists, my attitude should be one of worship with my heavenly Father. 
Why do we give him these disrespectful attitudes in worship? And the answer is, if we are really honest, is either we don't really believe that we're standing in the presence of a holy God, or maybe at best case scenario, we've simply forgotten. And the reason that God speaks to the children of Israel 2,500 years ago is to remind them, don't forget that you're in my presence, right? And I desire respect, and I desire honor. Now, the second thing that we see God addressing the children of Israel about here is not just their disrespectful attitudes, but also their disrespectful actions in worship. So look at verses 6 through 8. They say this, and so they're asking, well, how have we done all this? And he responds by saying, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name by offering defiled food on my altar? But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifices, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, right? Try offering them to the Persian governor that's in power over you. If you gave him a three-legged sheep that was cross-eyed, do you think he'd be okay with that, right? In the same way, I'm not. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. I'll give you my best, Lord. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. In other words, what God is saying is, I can actually see your attitudes about me in worship through your actions. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to tell a story, and I can't remember if Levi is here this morning or if he's in children's church next door. Levi, if you're here, I'll give you a dollar. If not, don't tell him, okay? Don't tell him I use this illustration. All right. So, you know, having my children have grown up in the church, whether it was at Perimeter or here at Seven Hills Fellowship for the last eight years. And so, you know, Chris and I are trying to figure out how to be parents to our children while I'm an absentee father for 24 hours, starting at five o'clock on Saturday night through, you know, Sunday. And, and so Krista's, you know, been the one that sort of oversees our kids learning how to tithe, you know, giving 10% of their income to God uh, through worship. And, and so, you know, each of our kids from early on, Krista would say, all right, if you get a dollar from grandma for your birthday, well, we'll put that in your piggy bank, but let's take out a dime that then you can put in the offering plate on Sunday morning, right? So that's how we're training them to tithe over the course of the years. And so it's, you know, it's funny, you know, uh, Sam is not the most willing giver of all, but he's done a pretty good job with it. There's a dollar for you, Sam. May will give everything in her piggy bank every Sunday if we let her. She would give all of her money away to everybody all the time. So she's a, she's a good tither, right? She loves to worship God through all this stuff. Levi is going to be rich one day because that boy is chintzy. Let me just tell you right now. So he's our nine-year-old, just turned, just turned nine. So one morning, you know, Krista's, you know, sitting with him or whatever. Do you have your dime? Yes, I've got my dime. And, and so the, you know, plate comes by the row in front, and then it starts to come down, the, you know, where they are. And uh, Krista's kind of watching Levi, and sure enough, he digs into his pocket, and he sort of puts a coin in the offering plate, and then it comes to Krista, and Krista looks down, and she's really happy that Levi has tithed, you know, on his own. That's great, because he's not always the most willing tither. And she said she looked down into the offering tray, and it was a plastic dime that he had gotten from the schoolroom at our house, and he had switched the real dime for the plastic dime, right? And dropped it in the offering plate. It's, it's, it's a really a funny story. It was really hilarious. Krista should actually tell it. But anyway, and so of course, you know, on the one hand, that's understandable, right, as a kid. In fact, he, he, Krista kind of called him on the carpet later about it, and he basically said, yeah, but I keep giving all this money, and I don't see... Essentially, he said, when am I going to get something for it, is what he asked, right? 
And, and what he did was he essentially showed his attitude towards God in worship by his actions to God in worship. And so again, I, I'm not here to get all over you necessarily, but simply to say the reason that God gives us uh, the, the prophets, the reason he gives us scripture is not always just to tell us, hey, I love you, although that is always part of the story, but sometimes it's to say, hey, like a good doctor, I need to show you that cancer that's hiding out inside you because you may not be aware that you have a disrespectful attitude towards me in worship. You may not be aware that you have disrespectful actions to me in worship, and I'm here to tell you that. And again, the question would be, why would it be that we would have a disrespectful action in worship? And again, the answer is because we forget that we're really in the presence of a holy God. Because if you're in the presence of a holy God, all of a sudden giving him your best, giving him honor, giving him respect is easy. It flows naturally. And again, the reason I think that God communicates this to us today is because we forget that we're standing in the presence of a holy God, that he's actually our audience in worship. And so again, God's calling the people on the carpet, and he's basically saying disrespectful attitudes, disrespectful actions. And so the next question is, so what do we do with all this? And very quickly, I'm going to say two things. One, part of what this demands from us, part of what God desires from us, is that we worship him with honor and respect, okay? We worship him with honor and respect. Listen to these uh, same verses I've read a couple times already. A son honors his father, a slave is master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. And what God is doing here is he's basically uh, reminding them of how they need to be respecting him by using these other relationships in which they automatically, naturally, and very easily ascribe honor like children to parents. In that culture, that was actually really common and normal, even if it's less so in ours. He, he reminds them of the relationship between in that context, really employees and employers, right? Because in that context, that was really normal that you would be respectful and you would treat your employer with honor, even if, again, it's not so common in our day and age. And of course, what he's saying is, of course, you treat them with respect. You'd never think of doing anything else other than treating them with respect. And if you treat them with respect, please treat me with that same respect and that same honor because I'm God. I'm your heavenly father. I'm the ultimate uh, employer, Right? When I, and it's funny, there are different cultures where honor and respect is still a part of those cultures. When I was in India, simply because I had uh, academic degrees, people treat you with honor. It's true in Africa, right? It's true in India. It's true in other parts of the world, probably in China as well. There are cultures for, you know, where respect and honor are still given to people who are presumed to be authorities in different respects. And so everywhere I went when I was in India, they called me Brianji, Brianji. And uh, the whole time I kept, you know, kind of being like, all right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, you know, we would chat or whatever. And, and, uh, and eventually I asked a friend of mine who was Indian. I was like, why do you keep calling me Brian G? And he said, well, G is a term of respect. It's a term of honor. And he said, every time anyone's treating you with honor, respect, they're, they're, they're saying Brian, and then they're adding this term of honor and respect under the end of it. It's just a part of their culture. I sat in Panera several years ago um, with a man named Pete Roberts, who some of you knew. He actually oversaw the construction of our building next door. A fantastic guy. And Pete and I were over there talking about how important respect and honor is to both of us as men. And, uh, and it was funny because I had always thought that my whole respect and honor thing grew out of the fact that I was from the Southeast. And in uh, and, and talking to him, what I realized was that was probably a part of it. But he went to VMI or the Virginia Military Institute 
And my dad was in the military. And in talking to him, what I realized was is that I've got this big honor and respect thing, partially from being from the South, but partially from growing up in a military family where you treat those who are over you in authority with respect and with honor, right? And so again, all God is doing here is he's saying, look, all over the place, you're treating people with honor and you're treating people with respect because it comes naturally to you. But for some reason, you're not treating me with honor and respect, even though I am the author of reality, even though I am your heavenly father. And I desire that you treat me with honor and with respect, right? I mean, is that, is that really that outlandish that we would desire to treat God truly with honor and with respect, right? You know, maybe the real issue is what's the outworking of that? And I'm not about to tell you that it means you got to wear nice clothes, right? I'm not about to tell you that it means you have to have short hair and it has to be parted on the side or whatever it used to be, whatever it used to mean. But I think what I am going to say is that it's up for you to look into the scriptures and it's up to you to look into your heart. It's up to you to say, okay, God, I want to treat you with honor and I want to treat you with respect. The second thing that we take away from this is that not only must we worship God with honor and respect, but we've got to worship God with our best, okay? Now, I'm going to read these verses again, and we'll talk for a second about it. Again, it says this, It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? What God is essentially saying is, you naturally give your best to these other people, right, in the world who are worthy of honor and worthy of respect, but it's also what I desire from you, right? And so if you look at the very beginning of Scripture, all the way through the very end of Scripture, there's this theme that comes out, whether it's in Leviticus or, or, or in Hebrews, wherever it comes out, the message is always the same as that God desires your best. He desires your best attitudes. He desires your best actions. He desires the first fruits of everything. God desires your best, right? Is that too much to ask? In fact, many of you guys are familiar with the story of, uh, of, of Cain and Abel, right? You remember the story of Cain and Abel? These are Adam and Eve's sons. And there's this story where they each worship God. And, and so what's interesting is that Abel has these flocks and he brings some of his sheep and he sacrifices them to God. And Cain, who's more of a farmer, you know, with, you know, vegetables and fruits, he brings some of his stuff and they worship God together. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice, right? And I remember reading the story uh, as a kid, and I remember hearing it preached on before. And the way that I always heard it preached was, well, the God likes animals, but he doesn't like vegetables and fruit, right? Which is just not true, actually. You can look at, read Leviticus. God actually desires sacrifices of, uh, of grain and other things like that. That's not the point. But I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to tell you what the point is. It says this, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The reason that God didn't accept Cain's offering, but did accept Abel's offering is because Abel brought the fat or the best portions. This is before people were counting calories, right? But the best portions of the very first fruits of his flock. In other words, Abel brought the best of the best and offered it to God. 
And Cain eh, kind of grabbed a wilty head of lettuce, right, and a half-rotten eggplant and went, hey, God, how about this, right? And, and so the reason that God accepted Abel's sacrifice but not Cain's is because Abel offered his best. You know, it's funny. I've been reading through the Bible in a year with my accountability partners, and, uh, and so we've read, you know, through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and it's not easy, let me just tell you. But one of the things that comes out over and over and over again as we've been reading for the last few months is that God desires our best. God desires our best. And it's really influenced the way that I've been worshiping God. And so when I simply have my quiet time, or even when I'm doing my read through the Bible in a year, I used to just sort of figure out where I could shoehorn it into my day. And all of a sudden what I'm doing is I'm going, all right, God, if you want my best, then I need to pick the best part of my day when I've got the most energy and the least distractions. And that's when I need to worship you. That's what God desires is for our best. But you know what the problem is? The problem is that we almost never give God our best. We've almost never given God our best. And let's be real honest. God knows that as hard as you try, you'll never be able to consistently give him your best. And even if you could, your best isn't good enough, right? The Bible tells us that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. Not that he despises them necessarily, but rather compared to the thing that is truly best, they're just not good enough. They pale in comparison. Martin Luther said you can't even say the Lord's Prayer without sinning, right? And so we're just, we're, we're messed up people. We don't naturally give God our best, even when we do try. So what is the answer to this? How do we offer God our best if that's what he desires? Well, the way that we do it is by remembering that the best that we can offer God is his own son, Jesus, right? That's it. That's, I could have stopped before I made that last comment, and a Jew or a Muslim or a good self-righteous person who was a, a theist would have agreed with everything we just said, but what makes this a Christian sermon is what I'm about ready to read to you. Whenever I read a passage of Scripture, I always want to know, how is it that Jesus is the answer to Malachi? How is it that Jesus is the answer to Genesis? How is it that Jesus is the answer to the Psalms? And just look at these passages of Scripture I'm getting ready to read here. We're going to go back into this passage again. It says this, A son honors his father. Let me ask daughters and sons out there, have you perfectly honored your father? Absolutely not. But guess what? Jesus was the perfect son who perfectly honored his father. It goes on to say, And a slave his master. Right? Have you been a perfect employee? Of course not. But what you need to know is that the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus came not to, to be served, but to serve. Jesus was the perfect servant. He goes on to say, if I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is all the priests that serve in my temple, they're all sinful, they're all broken, they're all weak. But Jesus is the perfect high priest, right? Verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask how we defiled you. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Again, Jesus is the answer to that. Hebrews tells us that Jesus gained access to God, not by the blood of sheep and goats, but by his own blood because he was the perfect sacrifice. Verse 12, but you profane it, by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food contemptible, and you say, what a burden. What a burden, the attitude. 
And yet in Hebrews 12, read that Jesus, we read this about him, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus' attitude in regards to suffering, in regards to living the perfect life that we couldn't live, his attitude was an attitude of joy. He did it because he wanted to give his father his best. He did it because he wanted what was best for us. And so it wasn't a burden for him, but rather it was an act of joy. And so the main idea of Malachi, what God is saying to us is, I want you to give me your best. But when we look at scripture, what we understand is that our best, the best thing that we have to to offer God is his son, Jesus, who was our perfect priest, who was our perfect sacrifice, who was the perfect son. And so all you have to do in order to give your best to God is to say, God, all I've got is to give you my faith in your son, Jesus. Does he want you to worship God with a pure heart? Absolutely. Does God want you to tithe with a pure heart? Absolutely. Does God want you to have your quiet time and try your best to have a good attitude? Absolutely. But ultimately, what matters above all else is that when you come before your heavenly father, you simply say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your son Jesus' cross I cling. It's in his name that I worship you and that I desire to give you your best, which you gave to me. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that over and over again, what rings through the words of scripture, whether it's Genesis or Psalms and Proverbs or Malachi or the book of Hebrews or the book of Revelation, the answer is always the same. And it's that our best wasn't good enough. And so you gave us your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we simply give him back to you. We worship, we pray, we tithe, we work. We do all things through the blood of your son, Jesus, Father. And we know and we believe that you accept us, again, not because of our goodness, but because of the greatness of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.